There's hope. There's hope. We're holding that hope. I think we're, uh, we're applause challenged. But that's all right, though. It's, it's just fun watching the effort. <laughs> Sylvia, Allen, Paige, Pamela, thank you for all your contribution to what goes on. In heaven, it won't be hard. You know, the story is told of a man who had a reputation for being overly self-confident. In fact, his confidence came dangerously close to prideful arrogance. Consider the following true story. Jim and his wife, Mary, were avid outdoors people who loved, among other things, they loved to go camping, running, rock climbing, anything that had to do with outdoor adventure. Well, on a specific camping trip, Jim, as was his custom, would get up early in the morning before Mary to go out for a run. One particular morning, Mary had uh, heard a commotion that was going outside the tent. And when she looked outside, she saw Jim in full run, just a full sprint, as he was running as fast as he could around a picnic table, being chased by a huge grizzly bear. And this bear was gaining ground. This bear was just about ready to jump on Jim's back. And Mary yelled out, honey, look out. And Jim looked over with a smile on his face and said, don't worry, babe, I'm one lap up on him. (laughs) You know, the the, the point of that, if there is one, is that the the Bible warns us that we must never think more highly of ourselves than we ought as to affect sound judgment. And in our ongoing study through Luke's gospel, we come to a passage today that directly relates to how God's people should think of themselves If you've got your Bible, turn with me to Luke chapter 9, where Jesus teaches his disciples and us as a result what is involved in true greatness. And we find this in Luke chapter 9, verses 46 through 50, where we read these words. And an argument arose among them as to which one of them might be the greatest. But Jesus, knowing what they were thinking in their heart, took a child and stood him beside himself. And he said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who has sent me. For he who is least among you, this is the one who is great. And John answered and said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to hinder him because he does not follow along with us. But Jesus said to him, do not hinder him, for he who is not against you is for you. I couldn't have chosen a more appropriate passage and message to share on this our anniversary and membership Sunday. If God is to continue to use us to reach this world with the word of God, we must each understand and apply what is being taught in this passage. Because it'll be a foundation which God will build upon. Several years ago, Linda and I and our family had the privilege of being invited to Washington DC. At the time for a private tour of the White House, a family friend worked at that particular time for Vice President George Bush Sr., who was under the Reagan administration. And as we walked from the Oval Office toward the residence, we passed the Rose Garden, which overlooks the South Lawn, and in the distance is the Washington Monument and Constitution Avenue that goes along there. The tourists would line up along the fence, and they would go all the way around and loop around the Pennsylvania Avenue and come back in where the public would be taken on a limited tour. 
And as we were standing there looking out over this scene, the, 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 the South Lawn, the Rose Garden, the Washington Monument in the background, and uh, we were there at night so the crowds were gone, but recalling the scene in the daytime, I thought specifically as I looked out that particular window of an excerpt that I had read out of Chuck Colson's book, which is uh, that particular book of Kingdoms in Conflict. And he wrote at the time the following. He said, speaking firsthand, Chuck Colson said, I vividly recall he was the uh, uh, attorney who worked underneath President Nixon. He said, I vividly recall a, <clears throat> excuse me, a glimpse from my White House days. One brisk December night as I accompanied the president from the Oval Office in the West Wing of the White House to the residence, Mr. Nixon was musing about what people wanted in their leaders. He slowed a moment looking into the distance across the South Lawn and said, the people really want a leader a little bigger themselves, don't they, Chuck? I agreed. He said, I mean someone like Charles de Gaulle. There's a certain aloofness, a power that's exuded by great men that people feel and they want to follow. That, of course, was Coulson's take before his humbling at Watergate as an encounter with Jesus Christ as his Savior. Later, he would go on to write, Jesus Christ exhibited none of this self-conscious aloofness. He served others. He spoke to those to whom no one spoke. He dined with the lowest members of society. He touched the untouchables. He had no throne, no crown, no bevy of servants or armored guards. A borrowed manger and a borrowed tomb framed his earthly life. Kings and presidents and prime ministers surround themselves with minions who rush ahead, swing the door open wide and stand at attention as they wait for the great to pass. Jesus said that he himself stands at the very door of our life and knocks, patiently waiting for us to allow him to enter. Colson is absolutely right. The Bible teaches that true greatness is the exact opposite of pride and exclusivity. Yet, unfortunately, many Christians, and as a result, many churches, become prideful, narrow-minded, and unloving. And the question that I was challenged with as I was considering this, how does that happen? How does that happen, and how can we protect ourselves from that taking place here at this church and in our own lives? Recently, I read the difference between cats and dogs, and I think it might help us to understand the point. It's been said that a master pets a dog, and the dog wags, wags its tail and thinks, he must be God. The master pets his cat, and the cat purrs, shuts its eyes, and thinks to itself, I must be God. <laughs> you know, after God has graciously reached down to us, there's a perverse human tendency to start to think like the cat. If you stop and think about it, as Christians we begin as humble, needy, broken sinners who having recognized our need for God's forgiveness, we turn to Christ, we repent from our sins, we trust in Him, we respond by grace through faith to the finished work of Christ. That He died on the cross for our sins, that He rose again from the dead, and that He stands at the door patiently of our life and He knocks. And if anybody would open the door and allow him to enter, he comes in. And the Bible says we're born again by the will of God, not by our own human efforts or even works of righteousness that we do. 
You know, and, and then we become new creatures in Christ. The old things pass away and all things become new. And it doesn't take long before God, who began a good work in us the day that we trusted in Christ, as He continues per, per, to perfect it until the day that He returns or calls us home, He begins to chip away at us, at these rough spots that we have. And before we know it, you know, our language that, you know, was just absolutely atrocious, He cleans our language up. Our thought lives, He cleans our thoughts up. These destructive habits that we have. He begins to work on those and clean those up as well. Where we lied, we now speak the truth in love. Where we used to gossip or slander or talk negatively about people, we look for those things that we can edify or build up one another, to encourage one another. And we start to do these things because Christ is alive in us and He's at work in us and He's working on us and chipping away at all of these things. And where we are prideful and arrogant, now we're humble and we praise Him and lift Him up. And we don't take credit, we we defer it all to Him first of all and then to one another as we live in obedience. And before you know it, all these things that God is doing in our life, we start to believe that we're pretty good people. We forget where He has brought us from and as as He chips away over a period of time, we get down a little further down the road and we start to believe that we're okay now. And we look at others with this just a frown and disdain like, you know, what's wrong with you? Why do you still talk like that? Why do you still joke like that? Why do you still think like that? Why do you still say the things that you do and do the things that you do? And why do you still have these filthy, disgusting, destructive habits in your life? And look at us. Look at me. Why can't you be like me? And as soon as we start thinking like that, We are a putrid odor before God and the world. And it's not hard for people outside of Christ, the unchurched, to see that, to sense it, and more importantly, to smell it. And there is nothing attractive about that garbage in our life. How can we protect ourselves? You know, we may not think, I must be God, but but we do silently imagine, I'm not that bad. I'm pretty good. You should have seen me then, and now look at me now, and wow, look at me. You know, we become proud of our apparent, you know, sanctification. We become proud of our knowledge. You know, to us it has been granted the knowledge of the mysteries of God. And we become proud and arrogant about the fact that we understand and know the things of God that other people don't and they don't see. And how special we become. And we start to believe that. And that stench, if we buy into it in our own life and collectively as a church, that stench will keep people from wanting anything to do with any of us. That stink, that foul odor is what Jesus addresses in our passage because wrong thinking assaulted the ministry. And he would use it as the basis to teach truth. And from Luke 9, 46 through 50, we're going to look at three things that will help us understand true greatness as is instructed by the Lord himself. Now, we need to recognize and understand what led to this teaching. Well, look at verse 46. We read that, And an argument arose among them as to which one of them might be the greatest. Among them are the twelve. And if you stop and think about and picture the scene, God has reached out to them in their humble circumstances. They've been called from darkness to light. They've been taught the mysteries of God. They were gifted for service. They've been used by God. They've produced these great spiritual results. And now they began mistakenly thinking of themselves, I must be, we must be someone special. 
And in fact, not only are we something special, but more importantly, out of all of us that are something special, I am the most special. And that was their argument. They began to argue about which one of them was the greatest. I mean, I can't, can you imagine the scene? If you put all the gospel accounts together, there's some specific key words that are used. Uh, we're told that they reasoned among themselves. I mean, literally, logically, they would sit down and present the argument as to why they were greater than the other 12. Now, and I can just see it. Peter, James, and John were thinking, well, we must be more special than the other 12. After all, we got to go to the Mount of Transfiguration. You know, Jesus didn't ask you, the other nine. Right? So there, there, there's an argument. They reasoned with it. Another word is used is that they debated it. They, I mean, they got into a heated argument. The word argument here is that they got into a finger-pointing, chest-thumping, testosterone-filled, loud encounter of who was the greatest. I mean, can you just say, no, I'm the greatest. No, I'm the greatest. No, I'm the greatest. Why are you the greatest? Well, I've got to go up to the Mount of Transfiguration. I saw Jesus glorified. I'm the greatest. And they're shoving and pushing each other, and that hurts so bad. And, and so they're, they're arguing with each other, and it's like, what, what, you know, what brought them about thinking that they were the greatest? Well, if you stop and think about everything we've learned to date from Luke's account, there's a multitude of people feeling, uh, you know, following Jesus. Jesus spent an entire evening in prayer before he selected these 12 guys. So right off the bat, it's like, wow, you know, we're, we're coming out of the crowd. We're emerging from the pack. And then on top of all of that, you know, he gave them the gift and he had, they had authority over all demons and diseases. And as I mentioned, for the three, they got to go to the mind of transfiguration. You know, they got to see Jesus glorified before them. They had these special privileges and glimpses. And, and I could just hear the petty argument that goes on because we all see it in our own lifetime of how ugly we can be sometimes towards one another. You know, Peter, James, and John, we got to go to the mountaintop and we saw the Lord glorified before us. And the other nine thinking, yeah, Peter, the only reason you got to go is that he can't trust you out of his sight. Every time you turn around, you're messing things up. He had to take you. You know, and then they're looking at him. And then the three came back down. And the first thing that happens is they come into the encounter with the man whose son has a demon who possessed him. And the other nine couldn't cast him out. So then the three are thinking, hey, there's another part of the argument. Look, not only did we see Jesus glorified, we came back down and found out that nine of you couldn't even cast out this demon. So right off the bat, you are all disqualified and it's up to the three of us. And there was a continuous argument that they had, and it was ongoing throughout their ministry. You know, over tw- you know with, with over 20 years of working and ministering to professional athletes, you know, I've seen how easy it is for men, even their wives, even their girlfriends, even their parents, even their friends, to believe somehow that they are special and somehow above others because of what they do. And I can understand why. They're the best of the best. Literally, they're the best of hundreds of thousands of people who participate in a given sport, whether it's football, whether it's baseball, whether it's hockey, whether it's basketball. They have emerged and they have risen to the top. And they begin to believe that they are better than everybody else and our whole culture reinforces it by telling them so. You're the best. You deserve this. You deserve that. And everybody around them, and they start to buy into it, and they start to believe it. And then we, as a general public, you know, we get sick of of all the nonsense and the arrogance and the pride and guys talking about themselves in the third person. And, you know, it's like, you know, hey, well, when Jimmy was out there today, Jimmy did this, Jimmy Bob did that. Jimmy, aren't you Jimmy Bob? I mean, you know, it's like, who's Jimmy Bob? It's like, you know, you mean me? Well, it's like, you you know, and we get tired of it. And yet at the same time, lest we be too hard... 
the same pride can sneak into our lives as believers and then into the church and we start to reason, we start to debate, and then we start to argue how great we are and then we start stinking to high heaven before God and others. How can we guard against this from happening to us? How can we protect ourselves from being, becoming prideful and arrogant, stinky people? And the answer is very simple in verse 47. But Jesus, knowing what they were thinking in their hearts, took a child and stood him beside himself. I love this. How can we protect ourselves from becoming prideful, arrogant people? We need to turn to Jesus. We need to go to him. I love this. Jesus knows the heart. And he demonstrates it regularly. You know, God knows our hearts. And if you want to know if you've becoming, become a prideful, stinky, arrogant person that turns people off from the gospel, then I would challenge you as I challenge myself to simply go to the Lord and ask him, Lord, have I become prideful and arrogant? Am I blind to it and don't see it? Show me your glory so that I will remain humble in your sight. Show me who you are so that I recognize, because of your perfection, how imperfect I am. Show me your greatness so that I never mistakenly believe that I am great in any way. Lord, you show me if I'm thinking wrongly. Reveal it to me, any wickedness in me, any pride in me, any arrogance in me, so that I can confess and agree with you that it is sin and repent from it. Lord, you show me. And he will. How did Jesus reveal their pride to them? Well, the illustration that he uses, if you'll notice, number one, he takes a child. It's a little child and he takes and he places this child in the seat of honor beside him. He placed him beside himself. He took a child, and in the, the Jewish culture, though they were loved and cherished, a child was the smallest and most powerless individual in Hebrew culture. The Talmud says regarding spending time with children, it would be a waste of time. In fact, one rabbi wrote this, Morning sleep, midday wine, chattering with children, and tearing in places where men of the common people assemble destroy a man. What he's saying was keeping company with children added nothing to a man. If you recall later, and we'll look in the, in the Gospel of Luke and Luke 18, later on, children were coming to Jesus, and the disciples were trying to keep those children from coming to him because they wrongly believed in their culture that Jesus had more important things to do than spend time with children. He would be wasting his time, and their job was to protect him from them. And what Jesus does, as he always does, and what the Word of God continually does, it blows up wrong thinking of any culture. And what he was saying to them was, listen, you know what? You're wrong about children. You're wrong about common people. You're wrong about a whole bunch of things, and I'm here to teach you the truth and guide you in the truth. So he took this child and stood this child right beside him in the place of honor. And he began to use this child as an illustration to teach them and to teach us how we can protect ourselves from becoming prideful, arrogant, smelly people before God and the world. And what he said to them was very simple. He took a child and stood it by him and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who has sent me. Jesus blew up the wrong thinking of the day. 
And he was saying to them and us, he said, if you're prepared to spend your lives serving people, if you're prepared to spend your life helping people, loving people who in the eyes of the world do not matter at all, then you are serving me and you are serving my Father who sent me. Jesus said, if you're prepared to spend your life doing the apparently unimportant things and never trying to be what the world calls great, then you will be great in the eyes of God. See, we need to recognize and be alert to wrong motives for service. And there are three of them that I just jotted down that you have before on your outline that I want to share with you. Number one is a wrong desire or motive for service is the desire for prestige. A.J. Cronin tells of a district nurse he knew when he was in practice as a doctor. says, for 20 years, single-handed, she had served the 10-mile district. And he said, I marveled at her patience, her fortitude, her cheerfulness. She was never too tired at night to rise for an urgent call. Her salary was most inadequate. And late one night, after a particularly strenuous day, I ventured to protest to her, saying, Nurse, why don't you make them pay you more? She answered and said, You know what? If God knows I'm worth it, that's all that matters to me. She was working and serving not for men, but for God. And when we work for God, prestige will be the last thing that ever enters into our mind. The Bible says, for God is not unjust. So as to forget your work and the love which you have shown towards his name and having ministered and still ministering to his saints in Hebrews 6.10. You know, we don't serve God for prestige. We serve people because they have a need. And in so doing, we serve our God. He's saying, you want to be great, then you've got to be a servant. You want to be first, then you've got to be last. You need to put God and others ahead of your own desires and your own needs. We're to have the same attitude that was in Jesus Christ, though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, he humbled himself. It was an attitude of putting others and their needs first that God honors. The second thing is there's a desire for position. You know, if ever a man is given a task or a position or an office in the church, he should regard it not as an honor but as a responsibility. There are those who serve within the church not thinking really of those they serve, but merely thinking of themselves and how they look before others. I praise God that the people that I have encountered in our ministry that serve in a variety of positions, from the elder board to every ministry that I can think of, do so because they're there to serve others. They see it as a responsibility, not as some type of position in which they'll be honored. A certain English prime minister was offered congratulations on attaining to that office. And he said, I do not want your congratulations, but I do want your prayers. I want your prayers. Every person involved in ministry at this church wants and needs your prayers. For a variety of reasons, but most importantly in light of what I'm talking about in this context, so that we never become prideful and arrogant. We never think that we're above or better than other people, that we always remain humble servants of our God, for He is God and no one else is, and He alone is worthy to be praised. We must recognize that we do not serve for position. If you think about the disciples and our ongoing argument, one of them was, which one of my sons will sit at your right and your left? 
which one will have a position of honor on this side and a position of honor on that side. And he said, you don't understand what you're asking for. It's not mine to give, Jesus said, but you know what? But if you will follow me, if you will deny yourself, if you will pick up your cross daily, then those who humble themselves, one day God will exalt them at the proper time. There's also a desire for prominence. And that's many persons will serve or give as long as his service or his generosity are known. So long as he is thanked and praised. And don't misunderstand me. I think we have a responsibility to recognize when others are serving, to recognize what they do, to, to thank them, to acknowledge that. But, but no one ever serves for that acclamation. No one ever serves selfishly, I mean, uh, sacrificially and, instead of selfishly um, for the praise of men. Because if that's the reason that you serve, it's not long before you get disgusted and discouraged. People don't, you know, they don't recognize what you're doing. They take you for granted. And then you just have a crummy attitude and you start to stink before man and God. You know, if you serve the Lord, do so because you know that he is not unjust to see your act of service. And he will reward you one day properly. And yet as human beings, we need to recognize that there are times and places where we acknowledge one another, we encourage one another, we exhort one another, build one another up. But we never do it to people that that's the only reason that they serve. Because you know what? You can't can't acknowledge them enough. We don't do it for prominence. We do it because we are called to do it. We are gifted to do it. And it is the least thing that we can do considering that our God gave us his very best and that his son, Jesus Christ, died on the cross, shed his blood so that you and I who trust in him would never be held accountable for sin. For those of us who trust in him that we would not perish but have everlasting life. Lord, we're here to glorify you in our earthly bodies. Not to seek prominence or position or prestige but to serve you because you're worthy to be served. See, greatness is a gift of God to those who receive and also serve the lowly. With these things in mind, we're ready to look at the instruction of Jesus in verse 48. He said, if you receive this child in my name, whoever receives me receives him, the Father who has sent me. For he who is least among you, this is the one who is great. He who will be least among you will be the greatest. Turn ahead to Luke chapter 22. And I want you to see that, you know, the disciples at this time in their life, they, they were a slow learn, uh, as so often we are. You know, he had just got finished giving them instruction as to what it meant to be the least in order to be the greatest. And now here in Luke chapter 22, at a pivotal time and a very, a very sensitive time in the Lord's ministry, We read these words starting with verse 23. And they began to discuss among themselves which one of them it might be who was going to do this. Jesus had just warned that one of them would betray him. He had just gone on to talk about the fact that he would be giving up his life and that one of them would be instrumental in betraying him. And if you can imagine the sensitivity of the moment, the the, the solemn moment that it was, and think about the callousness of men who would then begin to argue about which one of them is the greatest in light of what Jesus had just talked, just shared with them, that he would be going to die. It says, and they began to discuss among themselves which one of them it might be who was going to do this thing. 
And there arose also a dispute, just a downright big old-fashioned argument, shoving contest about among them as to which one of them was regarded to be the greatest. Here we go again. Well, if you're going to, you know, if you're going to betray him, you can't be the greatest. So that eliminates somebody. And we're down to, we're getting down to just a narrow few here. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them. And those who have authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. But let him who is the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as the servant. This is just not the way it's supposed to be with you. Folks, it's not the way it's supposed to be with us as God's people. If you want to be great in the kingdom of God, then we've got to be servants to all. If you want to be thought of by God, then you can't think of yourselves at all. We've got to do what God has called us to do to serve Him. And back at Luke 9, what he was saying was, you know, this is, this is the way it's supposed to be. You've got to have a servant's heart. You've got to have a servant's attitude. And I challenge you to ask yourself and ask God this question, Lord, am I truly a servant of yours? Or do I live to please myself? Oh, I may say the right words, but you know my heart. Is it really all about me and not about you or about anybody else? Lord, reveal that to me. And if it is, forgive me. Give me your heart for people. Give me the same attitude that was in Christ who emptied himself and took on the appearance of a man and humbled himself even to the point of obedience to death on the cross. And because he humbled himself, because he died on the cross voluntarily, willingly, the Bible says he's been given a name above every other name that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he's Lord to the glory of God. That's why it makes all the difference in the world and eternity who you say Jesus is. He's the only one who died to set us free from sin. He's the only one that was raised again from the dead. He is the only one who is alive today to offer forgiveness to those who humble themselves and go to the cross and trust in Him. That is why it makes all the difference in the world who you say Jesus is. Because of His obedience, His humility... He has been given the authority by God the Father that there is no other name under heaven by which men can be saved. We need to recognize that the instruction is one of, Paul writes, of, of humanity. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And here was a man who understood what it meant to be a servant. In 1 Corinthians 2, verse 1 through 3, he writes, And when I came to you, brethren, I didn't come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. If you're to be a servant of God, if I am to be a servant, the instruction that Jesus gives is that, you know what? We're to understand and accept our humanity. We're to be genuine, transparent, real people on display before the world. Paul was real, he was open, he was transparent, he didn't put up a phony front, he became a servant because he appreciated and accepted his own humanity as well as that of those he served. And it doesn't mean we make excuses for sinfulness, it doesn't mean we make excuses for wrong behavior before God, but we recognize the struggles we all go through and we point people to Jesus Christ as their only hope. If we are to serve others, we need to recognize their humanity. 
we need to recognize that every one of us are somewhere different in that, in that growth process. We need to recognize that while all of us entered the family of God by trusting in Christ and Him alone for the forgiveness of our sins, we're born again in a moment of time by the will of God. We become children of God to those who believe upon and receive His name. But from that point on, we're all in a growth mode. We're all children of God. We're saved. But it's no different than in your own families with your own children. Every one of them are unique and different before God. Every one of them are gifted differently. And every one of them have different struggles in their life that we must be sensitive to as parents. And how much more so does God understand that than us? And he says, listen, if you are to reach others for Christ, you have got to demonstrate in your own life humanity that says that, you know what, we, ex- we expect perfection, but we're willing to accept humanity. We're willing to accept you when you have flaws, warts, zits, and all. And no matter what it is, it struggles with. And we're not making excuses for sin. We're not telling you that, you know what, it's okay, you can continue to live before God and sin. Not at all. You've got to repent and you've got to turn from it. But what we're here to tell you is that we love you and we'll help you in that process of learning how to trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. To lean upon Him and not your own understanding. To look for Him and for strength. To free you up from the things that are holding you back from being everything that God wants you to be. We are not going to be critical or judgmental. We're not going to hold you in a different light than others who don't struggle with those things because we are all in this sinful corrupt body that we have we all struggle at different times with different things when you are enticed by evil not if and when it's when you are we all struggle and there's one thing that we all have in common and that is this that none of us will be in heaven aside from the fact that jesus christ and him crucified allows us to be there by trusting in him If we are going to be a church or a people that don't stink before the world, we have got to learn to accept people right where they are, flaws and all, and then allow God to use us to help them as iron sharpens iron, build them up in their faith. Paul recognized it. He said, hey, you know what? We've got to be real people. There's nothing that's more unattractive to the world than somebody who looks and smells like a phony. But when you're real, people will come and they'll want to know what it is about your life that is getting you through the time that you may be going through. And you know what? And it's okay to be upfront, honest, and transparent. You know, I don't understand all this. I struggle with it. But I know my God, and He's a good God, and I keep trusting in Him, and I keep leaning on Him, and I keep looking to Him to give me explanation. But if somebody had asked me, hey, do you got it all figured out, you know, what God's doing in your life right now? Absolutely not. But one thing I know about my God, He reveals Himself. He's a good God, and in Him there's no darkness at all. And so He's not doing anything with any evil intentions or evil heart because He cannot. And so I trust Him, and I look forward to what He's going to do. The second truth we learn from Paul is in verses 4 through 6. And he says, My message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Don't you love that? And how many times have you ever heard a preacher say that? Who understood he wasn't a great speaker. Who understood that he wasn't very clever. He wasn't very articulate. He didn't have a command of the language. His delivery, his style, his clothes, his haircut, persuasive words, emotional stories, or jokes isn't what reached people. What reached people was, no, it's the power of God. 
And the power of God is the Word of God. And the Word of God, when the Word of God is preached, the Spirit of God, coupled with the Word of God, convicts men and women of sin in their life. And it's only God and His Word that can take a person dead to God and resurrect them to the newness of life. It ain't about me. It's not about anybody. It's about God. It's about Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That is why this church will be built upon preaching the Word of God in prayer. Because... We are here to preach Christ and Him crucified. There is no other way that you can find forgiveness with God. There is no other way that you can get into heaven. There is no other way that you can be declared righteous before God other than faith and trust in Jesus Christ, Him crucified, and the power of His resurrection. That's it. That's why the Apostle Paul wrote to the Philippians, and he said this, You know what? If anybody had any reason to brag about himself, it was me. And then he went through and talked about his background and his family and his history and his education and where he was in life. And he said, You know what? what and i count all of that today as trash rubbish to be thrown in a trash can for the surpassing value of knowing jesus christ my lord and the power of his resurrection period everything else is trash before god so don't be thinking more highly of yourself than you ought to affect sound judgment we praise him lift him up and that's what we're here to do as a church and that's what we're here to do as god's people That's why we preach Christ and Him crucified. That's why we're not ashamed of the gospel. That's why it's on the front of that bulletin every week and will continue to be there as long as the Lord wills. That we are not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe. Have you believed? Have you trusted in Him? And if you have, then the power of God has risen you from the dead to the newness of life in Christ. Only God can change lives for all of time and eternity. I came across an, in, 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 what I believe sums up this point. James Irwin was a former astronaut, and he was part of the crew that had made the successful moonwalk, the first. And he spoke of the thrill connected with leaving this planet and seeing it shrink in size, and he mentioned watching Earth rise one day and thinking how privileged he was to be a member of that unique crew. And then he began to realize on route back home that many would consider him a superstar and for sure an international celebrity. And humbled by the awesome goodness of God, Colonel Irwin shared his true feelings, which went something like this. He said, as I was returning to earth, I realized that I was a servant, not a celebrity. So I am here as God's servant on planet earth to share what I have experienced that others might know the glory of God. A servant and not a celebrity. It's been said that the taller a bamboo grows, the lower it bends. And I like that. Because if we don't bend before God, God has a way of bending us before Him. True story, a coach whose name was Speed Morris, he coached basketball at LaSalle University. And they were having the best season in the history of their school. And one morning he was upstairs and he was shaving and he got a phone call and his wife yelled up to him and called to him and said, Honey, Sports Illustrated's on the line and wants to talk to you. And he got all excited about Sports Illustrated calling him. He hurried up and he shaved and he ended up cutting himself and not wanting to delay the rider. He ran to the steps and he slipped down the stairs and fell down the steps. And he he rolled over to the phone, got himself up, and there's lather all over, blood all over the place. And, you know, he got over there and he grabbed the phone and said, is this Sports Illustrated? And on the other end, the gal said, yes, it is. 
And he waited and she said, and for 75 cents an issue, you can get a year subscription. Isn't that great? It's the best. You know, God deserves all the glory. And he'll never share it with any man. You know, I believe part of what I've learned is that God has blessed me with cancer so that I don't exalt in myself but in Christ who loved me and gave himself for me. And I believe more than ever before how important it is for me to lift him up and deflect any credit from, him, from me or any of us to him. He is God. He alone is worthy to be praised. One last thing from the apostles, uh, Paul's life. He also talked about being absolutely honest. And he held everything to the light. 2 Corinthians 4, 1 through 2, read it. And he said, you know, everything is held before the light. His humanity, his humility, and his honesty. We didn't deceive anybody. There's no smoke and mirrors. We don't be upfront about everything that goes on because we want to hold it to the light. There'll be no funny business. There'll be no deals cut in back door rooms. There'll be none of that in God's church. Whatever a man sows, he reaps. Whatever a church sows, it reaps. And we'll be absolutely transparent before God. Nothing will be hidden. Everything will be open to him to whom we have to do. In closing, in Luke 9, there's one last truth, and that was the impact of Jesus' teaching on John. And I want you to notice, he says, And John answered and said, Master, man, he was convicted. And when the word of God is preached and the spirit of God goes forth, it's God's word that convicts our hearts when we're wrong before God. And can you imagine John was standing there listening to this, and he's seeing this little child next to Jesus. He's hearing that if you want to be great, You've got to be last. You've got to have a servant's attitude and a mind toward others. You've got to stop fighting about which one of you is the greatest and stop lifting yourself up. You're going to lift up the Lord and lift up other people around you and be content where God has you. And, and John was convicted. And you know, and when the word of God goes out and you hear it all the time, people say, you know, did, did my wife call you? Did my husband call you? Were, were you, you were talking directly at me. And I can praise God in open transparency say, you know what? I had never prepared any message with an individual person in mind, ever. But if God is touching your heart, it's because he knows your heart. If God is speaking to you, it's because he's dealing with you. And as John stood there and listened to this, he was convicted about what Jesus had just said. And he said, well, Lord, I've got to confess something. When we were out on the road, we, we came across a man who was casting out demons in your name and we try to hinder him because he doesn't follow along with us. We try to stop him from doing that. And Jesus said, wait a minute. If he's not against you, he's for you. And I want us, as a people and as a church, to work in cooperation with every Bible-centered, Christ-preaching church that we can partner with as we move forward in any way possible to reach as many people as we can for the kingdom of God. Because it's about His kingdom, 
not our local little kingdom. This is his church, and it's here to support his kingdom. And we will work with any and every church that preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ and him crucified in any manner that we can to reach as many people as we can possibly reach for Jesus Christ. What John did is what happens a lot in in the Christian community. If you're not one of us, we want to stop you from doing what you're doing. And the message was clear. Hey, unless they are preaching another gospel, then you pray for them, you encourage them, and you do whatever you have to do to support them. Because you know what? I'm raising up churches. I'm raising up people all over the place to reach others for the kingdom of God. You know, when Joshua rushed to Moses to warn him that some elders named Eldad and Medad were preaching and stealing some of Moses' prominence, Moses replied this way, Are you really jealous for my sake? I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit upon all of them. This isn't about me. This is about God and his kingdom and his purpose. Let's encourage others. While Paul was in the slammer in Rome, Paul learned that rival preachers were seizing the opportunity for self-promotion. And you know what his response was to the Philippians? He said, you know what? But it doesn't matter. The most important thing that matters is in every way, whether from false motives or true motives, Jesus Christ is preached. That's all that matters. Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself and committed his life to making him king instead of himself. John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus, said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He must increase and I must decrease. Look to him. We need to point people to Jesus. Look to him. If people want to be a part of this fellowship, we welcome you with open arms. If you feel God's leading you to go somewhere else to be part in a Bible teaching church that preaches the word of God, that tells other people that Jesus Christ is the only answer to the problem of sin in this world, then we encourage you, we love you, we'll support you, and you go where God is leading you to go. And we'll never hang on to somebody that God is leading somewhere else and, and we'll never force anybody to stay and we'll never force anybody that, you know, that, 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 or try to encourage or somehow or another distort people, manipulate them to be a part of this fellowship. We do so voluntarily and willingly as the Lord leads. And that's the way it's going to be. In closing, as believers, we have all experienced God's reaching down to us in grace. And in that sense, I, I want you to understand we are special. We are trophies of God. We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus so that we can do the work that God has prepared for us to do before the foundation of the world. But we must must never move from seeing the riches of His grace to saying, wow, look at me, aren't I something special? May our sinful hearts not pervert God's grace into a source of pride. Imagine greatness is a dangerous delusion. The truly great person is one who consorts with the lowly for Christ's sake and with his love. The truly great rarely reside in prominent pulpits. The truly great are rarely honored. They are hidden, anonymous servants before God. They stand with the weak. The truly great rejoice in the elevation of others. And they glory in the, in the growth and the success and the honor that God bestows on others. 
if you want to be great in God's kingdom, you must be a servant of all. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. How appropriate and timely are your words as always. God, it's my prayer, it's our prayer collectively as a church that we will always have a servant's heart. That we will always lift up the Lord Jesus Christ before the world. And that our hope will always be in him. We praise you for this day. We give you all the honor and all the glory for there's no one this side of eternity that could take any credit for what you have done in this past year in this church. We thank you for all of your blessings, including the people that you have gathered here and the gifts and the gift and gifts that you have given them to use in your service. We continue to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross and despised the shame. And we consider him who, grew, who endured such hostility from men so that we never grow weary and that we never grow faint of heart. Lord, we thank you, we love you, we praise you in Christ's wonderful name. Amen. Today is the, today is the first Sunday of the month. And as always, we do so not in a ritual nature but we do so as a time where we set apart this time so that we can focus on what Jesus Christ has done on our behalf. His death on the cross, the blood that he shed, so that you and I who trust in him could be forgiven and have eternal life. We look forward to the promises that he has made. And at this time, as we reflect and as the men pass out the elements, Chance will sing a song that hopefully as he sings that you will close your eyes.